This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Uh, my name is Kevin Navratel, and I'm the coordinator for global and diversity education here on campus at Moraine. Um, we are very fortunate to have Deborah Gittler speak with us today. Uh, Deborah is the founder and executive director of Contextos, an educational non-governmental organization established in El Salvador in the United States. She has a master's from Harvard Graduate School of Education with a focus on international policy and social entrepreneurship. Previously, she worked as a coordinator and lead author of El Salvador's National Teacher Training Strategy in the area of literacy, and she was a teacher in Honduras in the South Bronx. In 2013, Deborah was recognized as a fellow by the Echoing Green, which recognizes global leaders in social innovation. She was selected as one of 20 fellows from a group of 2,800 applicants and is the first fellow to work in El Salvador. Please join me in welcoming Deborah to our campus. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Um, so I don't have really an agenda. I'm going to do my best not to pitch my work to you um, and try to tell you stuff that might be interesting or inspiring or you know whatever your stories are right now. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background about the work that I do in my own story uh, and then talk a little bit about social entrepreneurship. But uh, maybe to start, when I say social entrepreneurship, do you guys know what I'm talking about? No? Okay. So, good. Um, I like the honesty. So, basically, the idea behind social entrepreneurship, as you hear, right now you see all over um, the Chicago Ideas Week, right, communities of courageous thinkers and things like that. The idea behind social entrepreneurship is that, you know, like all entrepreneurs, um, you're starting something. You're building an organization or a business um, and it has some sort of social implication. So it might be that it's a nonprofit, um, and that is going to provide materials to people who otherwise can't afford it. Um, and it might be a business that builds windmills, and so it's a very traditional business, but still has a social benefit. And so the idea is, as traditionally in business, we measure one thing, and that's profit. And the idea behind social entrepreneurship, and particularly the work that I'm doing, is that we're trying to measure social impact as well and social change. Um, so realistically, from now on, I think anybody who's starting a business that's not thinking about the social impact, we, we pretty much know they're not good people. <laughs> um, right? How do you start a business and not think about the earth or your neighbors or your employees? Um, so that's con still considered innovative ideas. I don't think that they're really that innovative, though. They seem like they should just be an expectation. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Contextos. Do any of you guys speak Spanish? Yeah? A little bit? OK. So Contextos means um, with texts and, in te and uh, context. So the concept of our work is um, we're a literacy organization. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you about what we do in a second, but I, I want to give you uh, some framework. Uh, so you guys know Malala. She just won the Nobel Prize. And she, this is her quote, let us pick up our books and our pens. They are our most powerful weapons. Um, people believe, you know, we know that Iraq, Afghanistan has incredibly terrible violence. And there is a lot of suffering. Um, I don't know if you know, though, that that is not the most violent place in the world. The most violent place in the world is Honduras. After that, it is El Salvador. And after that, it is Guatemala. Uh, so while we see on the news, and there's so much attention being put towards the violence that's going on in the Middle East or in parts of Africa, the highest homicide rates in the world are the countries that 
are right next to us. Um, the highest number of undocumented workers in this country come from those countries. Um, and so when we're, we're asking these questions and, and what Malala represents, this notion that education is what we should be using to fight violence, one of my questions is, if that's true, why are we not screaming about the fact that the most violent area in the world, which are our neighbors, also has one of the worst educational systems? Uh, so a lot of my work stems from a very much a social justice perspective. Um, so I don't know if you guys have ever seen the gangs in Central America. This is a gang member of the 18 of the 18 uh, gang. And so this is what they're sort of known for, the, the head-to-toe tattoo. Um, but I kind of, I just wanted to, to create that visual comparison of the, you know, this quote about peace and books and education and the reality of what violence can look like. Um, so like I said, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, the area that we work in have the highest homicides rates in the world. It's a result of narco-trafficking and gangs. Um, to underemphasize what that kind of violence looks like, I, you really, you can't overemphasize it, and I don't want to talk about it too much, but I do want to create perspective, because here we are in Chicago. Why should we care about this place far away? Um, well, I think we know Chicago has the highest gang and homicide rates in the US, right? So we actually have a lot more in common with these stories than we would think. Uh, but the other thing is, this number 57,000, which is how many kids came, um, walked across the border of the United States this year from those same countries. Uh, these are the refugee kids I'm sure you guys have heard about and know about that uh, spent some time in Texas. Some of them are still there. Many have been deported or have been placed with their families. Um, so again, the work that I do in terms of international development and working outside of the United States, um, this isn't a question about why should we care about another part of the world when we have so many problems here? It's not an either and, or an either or, right? It's not either the west side of Chicago or Central America. It's both and. These problems do not pay attention to borders. Uh, and if we don't invest in them at their roots, uh, we're going to see them continuing to spread. So I don't know if you guys have any questions up to that point or comments. Okay. So this is um, what we do. Our goal is to transform the quality of education so kids go beyond mechanical learning to develop authentic literacy skills. Um, so to understand what education looks like, I'll give you a little bit of my background. I went down there about eight years ago um, to start national education reform in El Salvador, which was part of regional education reform, starting from about mid-Mexico through to Bolivia. So that's a development zone. So if you can picture in your mind what that would look like on a map, um, and we were presenting this really uh, innovative idea called reading comprehension. And I think that's kind of silly that reading comprehension is innovative. It still is in most of the developing world, the notion that you should understand what you read and not just read as a mechanical skill, that you should be able to express yourself in a written way and not just know your letters. Um, it seems intrinsic to say, well, if you can't understand what you read, what's the value of reading? But when you think about uh, educational systems that were born out of in you know, the Industrial Revolution or in colonial uh, contexts, there was a lot of reason for that. So I'll just give you a little example of how kids uh, traditionally learn how to read. Traditionally, what, we believe, what is believed, in, not just in Latin America, it's all over the world, but particularly in Latin America, is that in order for a child um, to have a book, they should be able to read. And in order to learn how to read, they first have to learn how to do their lines and circles, and then write their letters, then write syllables, um, then words, and once they've mastered words, they can start looking at sentences in books. 
which is about third grade. About 25% uh, of kids will drop out of school between before third grade and Central America. And meanwhile, we also know that that is not the way kids learn how to read, right? You give kids picture books before they can walk, before they can talk, right? Reading aloud to kids is really important. So a lot of what we do, it's not just providing books. We do a lot of work to provide books and establish libraries. But what we do is try to change this phenomenon so that not only are they learning how to read differently, but once they are reading, they're not just sitting in classrooms and copying or taking dictation, but they're actually engaging in conversation. Um, so typically, I actually was, I was down in El Salvador last week, spend about half of my time there. Um, and I, I was with a student, he was in uh, eighth grade, and I said, oh, what are you reading? He goes, oh, I'm not reading, I'm copying this. And he was copying the story of the Jesus of Nazareth. And his job was to not read it and understand it or he'd have comprehensive questions, but to copy it, trace the pictures, and turn it in. Um, one of my employees who just got a scholarship to go to the Andover Breadloaf Writing Workshop in uh, Massachusetts, it's one of the leading writing workshops in the world, she graduated from university in El Salvador without ever writing an essay. Um, so the way that learning happens, and this isn't just El Salvador, again, I mean, if you guys have heard, if you're, if you're thinking about international issues, where one of the, the questions is, how do we move away from quantity or access towards quality? You know, we know that getting to school is important, but we know that going to school isn't enough if you don't have a positive experience there, uh, if you're not learning something. So it happens on a universal level all throughout the country, or throughout the world, is the United Nations, about 10 years ago, set goals that every kid should go to school, should have access. Um, so what happened is all these schools became, they opened their doors, and the number of kids shot up. The quality plummeted, um, and this style of teaching, just dictation and rote memorization stayed. So now throughout the world, everybody's pushing for this idea of, well, how do we know what quality learning looks like? So that's really, in a, in a pretty brief nutshell, what we're trying to do, and we believe that literacy is uh, the tool that you do that with, right? You read and write in all of your subject areas. What's funny is when we work with science teachers, social studies teachers, they often will start off by working with us saying, well, this has nothing to do with what I do. I teach science. And so we'll say, well, do you guys read in science? Well, maybe. Do you write in science? Well, I guess so, right? Um, but they don't think about that as reading and writing because of the traditional system that they come from. Um, so one of the things that we talk to our teachers about a lot, right, if you're going to write a letter to your boyfriend, you're not going to use the same language as if you write a letter to your boss. That's something you should learn as you're learning to command language. And so that's a, those are just kind of the kinds of things we're doing. So I wanted to show you guys a video, um, just so you get a sense of what the context that we work in is like. And I will tell you a little bit about the video as we're watching it. Basically what we're trying to capture, I really want you to see the environment, and I don't have great pictures, but um, like I don't want to tell you that it's poor, because it is. Uh, you know, these are kids that have dirt floors, their parents cook with firewood, um, they work, but it's not miserable, it's also not happy. Um, this notion that, you know, this, this elusive, lovely poverty, maybe that existed at one time, they also have smartphones. Um, and car batteries with satellite TV attached. They know what's out there in the world, um, but they also have very beautiful things in their homes. And so one of the things that we think a lot about as an organization, right, 
you don't want to go into a beautiful place with these with with forests and culture about coffee and and culture around family and just go in and decide that that's not right anymore even though the poverty has a an element of misery right and we also know that as the organization my organization contextos part of what we do is to confront violence part of what we do is to confront illiteracy and part of what we do is to confront poverty um, but we are not under the illusion that our organization alone can change all of that. Uh, we think about our work as, as addressing a very small problem and trying to be very clear about the problem we're trying to solve. Um, so in the video that I was hoping to show you, what you see is Yancy's life. You see her every day, uh, and you see how she goes to school, feeds her chickens, uh, goes to sell avocados and limes on the side of the highway with her sisters, um, and she talks about what reading means to her. But her mom had never um, seen a book before we started working with their school. And her mom, when we first started, and the teachers um, and the parents came, we had about 200 brand new books. Like, if you look over there, there's some children's books. And we would say to the, to the parents, you know, okay, pick a book. There's 200 of these beautiful brand new books on a table. Pick one. And the parents would say, no thanks. Um, those are great for my kids, but not for me. And we would say, well, what do you mean? Well, I don't know how to read, so I don't feel comfortable touching those books. So one of the first things that we do is work with parents so that they feel comfortable picking a book up and turning the pages. And we think it's intrinsic to know how to open a book, right? It's not intrinsic. Uh, just think about some simple facts. If you are from a different country, you wouldn't open your book left to right. You would open it right to left. So if you have no concept of written, of written print, you wouldn't know intrinsically to do those things. So for those kids who come from homes where nobody has ever read, where there are no books, remember then they go to school at five, six, seven years old, and they learn to copy, and they learn to say mame, mimomu, sase, sisosu, and then they do things like mase, misu. Well, those words that they're learning to read make no connection to the language they speak at home. So it's not intrinsically understood that this stuff on the page is supposed to be meaningful. And so the story of Yensi, in part, is how she starts to understand that meaning and then brings it into her home. I might need more help getting back to the PowerPoint now. Oh, no, there it is. So I'll tell you just quickly about our programs, and I really want to have a conversation more than keep talking at you. So our first program um, that we started with, I guess I should tell you a little bit more about my own story. So um, as Kevin mentioned, I went to Harvard Graduate School of Education. And that's where I started this program. So before that, I had worked in El Salvador and Central America for three and a half years. And I left really frustrated and disheartened and disappointed to see how development work works. Do you guys know what USAID is? USAID? No? USAID is the United States Agency for International Development. It is our foreign service arm. It's our State Department arm that d it gives money to developing countries, or even not developing countries, to help them develop. Um, so bilateral aid across the developing countries, Europe, the United States, parts of Asia, was a, it evolved because basically we became very wealthy. This is, I'm, you're going to understand my politics in a minute, but we became very wealthy by raping and pillaging other countries. <laughs> we stole their wealth and we owe them something back. And that's why there is bilateral aid. Uh, the other reasons are when there's uh, a horrible tragedy somewhere, like a tsunami or a hurricane, you want to make sure that as a country that ha is, has developed infrastructure, we can help. So I worked with USAID beforehand. USAID would give, you know, $50 million, $150 million. 
but what they were counting was predominantly um, how many teachers they trained, how many students they reached, how many books they distributed. And they could get really big numbers. And my job was to train teachers. And what I got frustrated by is that we kept being pushed to reach more teachers, even though we knew that the quality of that intervention was not transformative. You know, we could pack this room with 100 people and say 100 people showed up. I cannot say, though, that 100 people were moved. So how do we do that as an organization? If we want to make social change, reaching a lot of people is meaningful. But making sure that that reach is meaningful to them that's different. Um, so the first program we started, which was um, a teacher training program that involved libraries, we started working with library companies from all over the world and airlines. I was a student at Harvard. Um, I had had this incredible work experience, went back to school to get my master's degree, and I was frustrated and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my career. Started a project uh, in one of my classes, because a project seemed like a lot more fun than having to do a research paper. Um, and worked with some of my colleagues in El Salvador to set up school libraries. Um, there are no books down there because people are too poor to afford them, so nobody sells them. So we raised money from Harvard, went down with a bunch of faculty and, and students, set up these school libraries. Um, everybody got a great tan, and then we went back to Boston, and um, I was approached by someone who said, this is a great model, you should do this. You know, Bring books down to poor kids. And I was like, yeah, I'm not into that. Uh, if you want my contacts, take my contacts not really interested in that as a model, I don't think that's going to make change. Because I think the problem isn't resources, I think it's capacity. People don't know what to do with those books, right? I can bring books to Yancy's mom, but she doesn't know how to read a book. She doesn't understand culturally about sitting with her kid and turning pages. Um, so that's where, in, co in graduate school, I designed the first uh, version of our business model, which now is what we call our turnkey library program. Uh, so the basis of our work is that we believe that the quality of the teacher is the most important part in the quality of an education. Resources are very meaningful, uh, but they definitely are not the make or break. I'm sure you guys have heard that Steve Jobs' kids go to a school that has no technology. Um, Gates' kids, Bill Gates goes to a school, his kids went to a school that was tech-free. So this notion that technology is going to solve our problems or fix education, not true. <laughs> um, so this is our, our first program where we were pushing and working with teachers and helping them change their classroom practice. So remember, kindergarten teachers would say, no, no, my kids can't use a book because they don't know how to read. First grade teachers would say, uh-uh, we don't want these kids touching books because they don't know how to read. And so the first thing we did was have to shift that paradigm, make sure that kids felt okay with, with touching books. Some of them are going to get ruined, whatever. Um, the next thing was starting to read aloud. Just reading aloud and seeing what kids came up with, what their ideas were. And inevitably what happened is between the first visit and the second visit, all these beautiful books would end up locked up in boxes. And the teacher would say, we, we cannot do this. These kids do not know how to behave. They're all running around. They're talking all the time because they're used to kids who are silent, sitting in rows, and just listening and copying. So we work with teachers to figure out how to resolve those problems. And when kids have interesting things to say, um, how to respond and facilitate with it, that, right? Kids are fun. When you open up to kids, they'll say silly things. Sometimes they say things that are way smarter. Um, I was actually, like, here's a good example. I was with my niece, and my niece goes to, I'm Jewish, so she's getting her Jewish education, and she was learning about the holiday of Purim. And she said, um, well, you know, Queen Esther is very important because she saved the Jews. So she didn't understand that Queen Esther saved the Jews. She understood that Queen Esther saved the Jews. You know, she's five. 
um, for her, juice is really important. She has no concept of what it is to be a Jew. And I actually think she's way smarter in that regard. So what we do is we work with teachers to understand how kids are thinking and what that means. In a traditional classroom, my niece would have been punished, right? That's incorrect. Versus being celebrated, that like that's pretty clever uh, and funny. So after that, after teachers start really changing their practice and getting all these new, new ideas, we work with them to support writing so that their kids start writing. And then year after year, we continue to work with them in the Ministry of Education so that they become model teachers. Um, and we started three years ago with three schools and 17 teachers. And now we have 50 schools and over 300 teachers. So I can talk to you more about business models. I'll just tell you quickly about some of our other programs. Inevitably, what happens with kids, and it's important to emphasize that when we start working, our ninth graders are reading usually about a first or second grade level because they've never read books either. Um, but they can take off pretty quickly. And inevitably what happens when kids start reading a lot and they get the opportunity to have questions is they also have an interest in starting to write their own ideas. Um, about 60% of the teachers in El Salvador will have functional literacy. They will have great trouble. They might make a mistake recognizing letters in the alphabet. Um, so our students actually surpass the level of their teachers pretty quickly. And we need to find ways for them to be able to express themselves in meaningful ways and, be, and see that work be, be recognized. Um, and so that was how the Soy Autor program was born. Uh, this is a tech-based program, so we're using tablets. We have a digital platform, and we're able to work with kids from all over the country and all over the region so they can publish their stories. And remember, this is the most violent region in the world. These kids have some pretty crazy stories. And in a traditional education system, they're told that they can't share those stories. They need to just keep it inside. Um, and now that they're starting to tell their stories, it can be a very powerful process. I'm sure you guys have experienced that as well. I mean, when you feel like you're being heard, it can be very empowering. Um, and then the next thing that happened for us really is that as we were starting to grow, we started reaching out to other foundations and organizations to raise money, and we kept hearing from them like, oh my God, we're so happy to find somebody in Latin America. We work with all these organizations that work in Africa and Asia, they work multinationally, so in various countries in Africa or various countries in Asia, but nobody in Latin America. How's that possible? Africa and Asia have thousands of languages. It should be so hard to work in Africa or Asia. It should be so easy to work in Latin America. We're closer to the states. All of these countries speak the same language, but because of the history of the region, that just doesn't happen. So we founded an organization called Central America Reads, or Centro America Lee. And now we network within the region. We actually are just expanding to include the Dominican Republic as well so that we can create professional opportunities for teachers um, and best practices and conferences and things like that. So I had another video, but we will not see it. Um, let's see if there's... I brought some pictures. Like, because they're cute, right? How can you not think that's cute? Um, <laughs> So I want to know about you. I mean, what would be helpful to talk about? What are you interested in? Yeah? I actually kind of study a lot of this because I'm majoring in education. And cool. uh, one of the components that the state of Illinois has added in most of their teacher training programs at most of their universities is content area reading. Uh, like when you brought up earlier, science teachers say, well, this really isn't my job. Social studies teachers say this isn't really my job. Um, it, it's kind of a 
thing that we're doing in Illinois, I, mean, I don't know if it's nationwide, but we're trying to get away from that mindset and get more literacy instruction elements into content areas. Um, basically, when you talk about you know, 25% of kids being gone by third grade, that, that's basically you're missing everything past, say, basic phonics and basic like suffix root prefix work and not getting into real literacy like, you know, fluency in language or building vocabulary or even comprehending what you read. Yeah. And uh, it, it just seems like if, if you, a third grader is typically, what, about eight or nine years old in this country. I don't know if maybe same. They're, they're the same. Um, but when you're talking about, you know, being completely done with your education by the age of 10, how do you overcome that? I, I mean, I think that's a question just to sit on, right? I mean, and I think you said it well. How do you overcome that? Dot, dot, dot. I can tell you what they do do there, and I can tell you what I think should be done. So the way that the system that I work in is that if that person leaves school, goes off, becomes a gangster for 15 years, goes to jail, comes out, and decides he wants to go back to school, he will go back into third grade. Um, there's no GED, there's no equivalency process. So for adults, and El Salvador is a country that was in war for a long time, so you had a whole generation that never went to school. Their only opportunity to go back to school is to go back into the grade that they left. Um, it's pretty. I think it's it lacks a lot of dignity. Uh, but I think the bigger question or the bigger implication is, you know, what does this mean for society? If you have 25% of your public that's never never achieving a third grade education, um, what, is your, what is your human body capable of doing? How strong can your democracy be? Um, and I think that that's why, you know, for me, that's why this work is important. You know, I believe, and research would show that some places don't end up this, this violent except for the fact that something is broken. And I think when you look at how people are learning to, to think and the fact that they're not learning to think, um, there's, a, there's that correlation there. Does that... I mean, I, I get you. Like, it's more just to, like, you know, excuse the language, but, like, a holy... Oh, you know, it's crazy. I mean, 66% of kids are going to be gone by sixth grade. That means a third of their country has more than a sixth grade education. And that's actually pretty good in developing countries. That's pretty high. So one of the things that, you know, talking to Chicagoland teachers um, who understand the nuts and bolts of what we do, who will say, like, well, we're having the same problem here. Why should we care about there? Um, and I think that that's a really valid question. And again, I don't think it's an either or. One, like, sticking point I will mention, do you guys know how much in Chicago they pay per kid per year in public school? About? Yeah? Yeah, about 10,000, 9 to 12 in Chicago public schools. Um, in El Salvador, it's just under 300. You know, so the bang for your buck is pretty good. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of money to make some huge changes. Um, also, the context is clearly very different, so it's not necessarily fair. But I think it's, it's important to look at those paradigms as well. So, other questions, comments? 
Uh, you said that um, these kids in like ninth grade, they're reading at a first grade level. And, uh, you know, we're putting all this money into this, sending all these people there to train teachers and, you know, quantity. Uh, what do these kids do uh, up until like ninth grade and the end of high school? What are they learning in class if they're not reading, if they're not allowed to touch the books? Yeah, nothing. I mean, <laughs> politically incorrect answer, nothing. Um, what are they doing? They literally copy stuff. So the thing is, maybe 20% of kids will naturally, it'll just work for them, they'll get it, right? But most of them, nothing. They go to school every day like it's a, it's a nursery. One of the things is also there's two turns of school. So kids go to school in the morning or the afternoon. Many of these kids have real responsibilities. Um, migration, about a third of Salvadoran citizens have left their country, and most of them are here working, um, working to raise money, both through documented and undocumented channels. So their homes are multi-generational but lack nuclear structures. Um, so many of these young kids are caring for their siblings. Many of them join gangs because there's not much else to do. And many of them do stay in school. And this is, to me, the biggest shame is these kids who stay in school all the way through and they graduate and they still can't read. And they can't read because nobody ever asked them what they've been doing or they can't write. Uh, or their ability to write is syllabic. So like the woman who cleans my home down there, uh, I have to read her notes out loud over and over to try to grasp what she's saying because she uses really, I mean, really rudimentary a first or second grade level to express a shopping list. So it's functional. Um, but what we know about reading and writing is that there's a difference between functional and expression. And there's actually, being able to express yourself has a strong correlation towards dignity. Um, so, so that's what they do. How would a student here at Moraine be able to get involved with what you're doing? Sure, well, you guys could come down and visit. That would be cool. I mean, I don't want to scare you with the violence stuff. It is really violent, but um, I'm fine. You guys would be fine. It, to hurt or harm or you know, think about harming an American citizen or somebody whose home is in the US is an international, um, it's an international scandal. So they don't hurt us. They don't bother us. It's poor on poor. Um, and within small communities. So I don't, I mean, it shouldn't be scary. Um, but there's a lot of stuff. We work with university students from all over, actually, in different consulting programs. We've had a lot of interns come down. We have interns there right now. Uh, it depends on your interest. We do a lot of our graphic design work is done with different, we work with pro bono consultants and then with students. So we're working with, with Leo Burnett, who's designing our campaign. And then we work with students who are actually implementing that design, and then they get to launch it with us. Um, so there's lots of ways. I mean, small things as you can share a video on Facebook and try to help us get more friends, right? Um, there's kind of an unlimited number of things. And just to look around at the number of resources you guys have, I mean, the campus is beautiful. And it's easy to forget how much we have and how much we can do. But just remember, I started what I did when I was in school because schools are a great place to harness your resources and your networks. Um, so... We always need books, we always need money, and we always need support. <laughs> Could you just talk maybe a little bit more about that, just as a, since almost everybody here is a student, um, about whatever issue that they may be passionate about, of, of how they could you know, start up an organization like you sure. did to address it. What do you guys think you want to do when you grow up? Or how many of you are already working full time? 
Are any of you working full-time? Part-time? Okay, I know there's some people who want to be educators. What else do you guys want to do? You don't know at all? How many of you hope that what you do is, will make you a lot of money? I mean, I do. I know it won't, but I do. <laughs> and how many of you hope what you do makes the world a better place? And how many of you hope that what you do makes a lot of money and makes the world a better place? Um, how many of you just really, truly have no idea? OK, good place to be. Um, I think you know, we all hope to ha find meaning in every day, right? We know what it's like to wake up and go to a job or a commitment that's really boring and not satisfying. Um, so what do I think? I mean, naively, I can't say follow your heart and don't make a paycheck. You've got to make money, right? Um, but my story, and now I spend a lot of time working with other entrepreneurs, is thinking about how they're going to create a life with a balance between um, taking care of themselves and doing work that is meaningful without having them be a total divide. Meaning, I don't, 9 to 5, do something I do not believe in so that at 5.30 I can start doing something that fulfills me. Right? For me, there was sort of a natural path, but I'll tell you this, I never thought I would be doing what I am doing. Um, and I never wanted to do what I'm doing. And there became a point where I realized that I felt I could do something nobody else was doing. So what you hear about with starting a business is often is looking for that gap, um, a product that doesn't exist but could help people. But one of the ways you can look at the world also is not a thing that we're missing, um, but a service that we're providing, right? And so that's where, for me, my work in Central America, I realized I had left Central America, come back to school, went to Harvard, and had great opportunities for work, but I realized I didn't want to work for somebody else. I saw this gap. Right? I saw in the workplace I'd worked before, the kinds of literacy organizations that I, I knew in other places were missing. Um, and so I wanted to fill that space. Um, which, to be honest, was a completely naive idea. And that I was, I, I, you know, I thought I would just show up and like, we'd fix it all. <laughs> it's hard, you know, raising money is hard. Um, but I, again, like for me, the people, I'm going next week, I'm actually going on Saturday. And I'm speaking at a Harvard event. And those people who I started with, who heard my first ideas, are still my biggest supporters. Uh, Harvard's never given me a dollar. But they sure love to publicize what I do. So you want to know how you guys can help and get involved? There's 18,000 kids in this, you know, here every year. That's 18,000 people who you can access with an idea. Um, so I would say, you know, from a student perspective, after college, this never happens again. Like, you never get to just hang out with your peers uh, and enjoy it. So if you have an idea or you think you have a passion, fail here, because it doesn't hurt nearly as bad as if you fail out there. Um, and you will fail, of course. I mean, that's part of it. So I mean, you guys know the reality. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of problems in the environment. There's a lot of problems in our communities. Sometimes thinking about what you want to do uh, helps you start anchoring yourself in terms of your own path. Is that so corny that I just said that? Sorry. Get a homework card. <laughs> Other questions or comments? Well, you said you're in uh, so social entrepreneurship. 
I just want to know your stance on possibly NAFTA and Monsanto and from your experience in Latin America how before 1980s there was a drop uh, agriculture was a driving force of the economy Latin America and since it came in after 1980 it displaced over 80% of workers I want to know how it it affected the region while you were there and the flood of immigration well, I'll tell you what I think personally. This has nothing to do with my professional stance. I think um, I think Monsanto's the devil. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, CAFTA and NAFTA have done a phenomenal job of destroying communities uh, and destroying local economic bases, um, and that the United States has taken very little responsibility for the implications upon that. Um, I also know there's no going back. You know, it would be naive to say, well, the future of these trade agreements is no trade agreement. So the question is, what do we do? Um, and again, the question of what you do here, you know, not just becoming an activist, but being aware is important. Um, you know, I think you hit it on the head. It does affect immigration. It's, it's affecting local economies. It's affecting uh, inflation. Um, personally, and this is where I stand, knowing all of that, I've always felt I needed to do something that I, you know, that I believed in, right? Like I needed to, I needed to believe in myself every day. And I, I'm lucky that I, I can and I have my family's support in the regard that like, you know, I'm never gonna be homeless because I can always move in with my parents kind of thing. Um, but I think what your questions are, what I would imagine is in some ways you're also pointing to this knowledge, like this, the world works in a way that doesn't, it doesn't seem fair. Uh, and that for me is really motivating. So, you know, I think Monsanto, sucks, but I can't lie. I mean, I, I'm sure I buy Monsanto products all the time. I don't know how to avoid it, right? So finding that balance between being an activist um, and, and living a good life. So I'll just give you a, a seed, seed anecdote in El Salvador. So there's what they call Millennium Challenge Funds. So the United States gives away a lot of money. One of them is called uh, Faux Millennio in Spanish. Um, so El Salvador is up for a $200 million. It's the second phase. So they got $500 million gifted. Here's something interesting about U.S. foreign policy. El Salvador got $500 million gifted under Bush, too. Um, it did not meet the benchmarks that it was supposed to meet to have received these funds, but it was the only country in El Salvador, or I'm sorry, in Latin America that sent troops to Iraq. Um, so that's how I think about all of that. It's, you know, rub my back, I'll rub yours. Anyway, the United States government, because seed procurement is under CAFTA and NAFTA. That's where you're going to get your seeds. Um, you, El Salvador cleans their seed, and they have a lot of business off of that. So that means they're recycling their seeds. They're not buying Monsanto, not buying genetic. The United States government said, we're not going to give you these funds unless you change your procurement to buy Monsanto. Um, that's, they, they had no business to do that. They were in, interfering in another country's sovereignty. Um, and another organization, that's not my thing, to be honest. Like, I'm, I'm glad it happened. You know, I'm glad people fight for it. That's not what I fight for, but... They fought, and they, they were able to um, fight against CAFTA and fight against Millennium Challenge so that they couldn't implement that roadblock. Um, but there's not a question in my mind that Monsanto seeds will take over El Salvador very soon because it's just, it's a beast, you know? Hi. Oh, um, when you talked earlier about how basically it's almost like lecture, listen, exam, lather, rinse, repeat, and that's kind of, you know, most research says that's pretty much the worst way to teach. Um, I, I was wondering if you think that some of those methods, 
number one, how do you get teachers to kind of embrace, you know, incorporating more variety and more diversity into their lesson planning? And number two, if these kids basically we're talking about, you know, 66% out by sixth grade, and these are, you know, kids with no learning disabilities, well, documented learning disabilities anyway, how do teachers differentiate what they do to accommodate for any learning disabilities, or is there any differentiation at all in what they do yeah. when, when they're in classrooms? So a lot of what we do is try to help incorporate differentiation. I'd love for you to check out our website, because I think you clearly are getting a great education about being an educator. Um, no differentiation whatsoever. Um, how do you, I mean, in the states we're dealing with the same thing. Teacher resistance is meaningful. I'll be honest with you guys, I think when you talk about older students and students your age, part of the problem is the student. Um, it's not your fault. You guys learn to be passive in first or ninth grade. Um, now your teachers have to try to get you to be unpassive. Um, but students need to take some responsibility for their own learning as well, I think. When it comes to little kids, you guys have, have you guys heard there's this really famous study, they give kindergartners a paper clip and ask them in one minute, how many things can you do with this paper clip? An average kindergartner comes up with like 50 ideas. They repeat that at 12th grade, and the average 12th grader comes, or comes up with like five ideas. The idea that education makes us dumber or less inquisitive, less curious, less innovative, right? So the question is now, maybe that worked during the Industrial Revolution when everybody's job was, you know, to stamp. Uh, but now that we're thinking, so I am a teacher, I'm a fan of teachers. I think that when you give teachers authentic opportunities and you empower them, they're gonna love it. When you walk in their classroom every two years and tell them they're doing something bad and start over, they're not. Um, I think there's probably bad teachers out there, but I don't know anybody, I've never met anybody in my life who says, I wanna suck at my job. I wanna go there every day and be miserable and hate the people I serve. So I just have this kind of gut feeling that teachers don't intrinsically not want to be the best they can be. I think the systems around them uh, do a good job of not empowering them. I mean, I was a teacher in the South Bronx for three years, and, um, you know, they, they were, I went through a lot of changes, but they would come, you know, people would come into my room with clipboards and rip things off my walls uh, because that wasn't according to what they wanted to see. And one of my classrooms next door, they went in and they ripped work off the wall, students' work off the wall because it wasn't up to standards not aware that these were kids with, with learning disabilities. Um, you know, so what that does to the dignity of the teacher and the student. So I think it's just a lot about respect. I think part of it is we have no idea why we're educating kids right now at all. Um, you guys probably don't know what you want to do when you grow up because the world doesn't know what's going to be available for you when you grow up, right? And I mean, when I say you grow up, I talk about myself growing up all the time, so not trying to be condescending. We're like this, we're really not the same age, but almost. Um, when you think about what's gonna be around in 10 years. You probably have no idea. We don't have any idea what the jobs are, um, what the computers are gonna look like, what technology is gonna offer. That's a total unknown, and yet we still believe that the educational system born out of the early 1800s is working. Um, I'll tell you this, when you get into your real jobs, and those of you who are working know this, you will never go to a job where you only work with people your age. <laughs> when you go to work, you're gonna work with people who are a wide variety of ages. It's only in school where we believe that we work only with the people in our age group. So for me, I mean, part of it, you know, the question about changing education and, and how do you motivate that is we're, we're really unwilling to change the educational system, but our expectations have changed so much. Um, 
So that's like where me as a thinker, I like to think about that stuff, but being practical, what I say is, you know, we want to give teachers real tools, we want to empower them, we want to give them professional opportunities. And frankly, in my line of work, when a teacher doesn't want to work with us, we won't work with them. It's fine. There's plenty of teachers who want to do it. If you ever want to come down and check it out, I can. <laughs> Other questions, comments? I have one. Uh, yeah. What about the role of the government in El Salvador? Do they support your work? Are they, and maybe related to that, what about, I think many of us in the United States, especially this summer, saw um, the, the issue of child migrants coming from Central America in a certain way. How, how does the El Salvador government view the situation? Yeah, um, so the El Salvador, they just went through a presidential election, and um, one of the things that we take for granted, I think, in the States, when your mayor changes, right, we have an election, your police still show up the next day, right? Firemen go to work. Um, you know that the hospital is going to be opened. In Latin America and many developing countries when there are um, political shifts, you don't know that, your, that those systems are going to continue to work. Um, so they went through presidential elections. They had two rounds in February. They were too close to call, so they went through another one. Um, so basically, we had like a year where things happened really slowly. Um, schools were not in session. Uh, teachers didn't go to schools. It was unclear what was happening because it was unclear who was president. Uh, and when the president shifts, um, imagine that here, you know, Rom isn't mayor anymore, and so the museums close down while they make a new plan. That's kind of what it's like. So working with the government is a double-edged sword. We love working with the government because... Um, we keep sort of an arm's distance length. Obviously, governments are political, so there's ministries and vice ministers, um, and those guys are political appointees. Um, but underneath them are people who are not political appointees, who have been in their jobs for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Some of them don't care at all about their work. Some of them are really passionate, and that's where we focus our efforts. So we have contracts with the ministry, meaning they pay us. We have... Um, uh, convenios or agreements with the ministry, meaning we take on work of theirs and get other funders. Um, we are an apolitical organization, but we think that the U.S. is highly politicized and, and highly polemic. Um, it's much worse down there. Uh, the right is further right, the left is further left, and they won't work with each other at all. We actually have a lot in common in that regard. Um, but working with the government for us is an ongoing learning process, so we actually, about we five months ago started working where the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Justice meet um, our kids in the justice system, juvenile delinquents, orphans, um, deportees, right, those kids when they're getting deported back. And we just started working where those two institutions meet. And it's been incredible to understand the level of incompetence um, that can exist. There's a principle called the Peter Principle. Have you guys ever heard of the Peter Principle? It's the notion that people rise to their level of their incompetence. So you keep getting a promotion when you're doing well until you get to the point where you're not good at your job anymore, and that's where you stay. Um, yeah, so working with the government in Latin America is hard. Let's see if I can give you another example of things that have been really frustrating. In the United States, when you apply for 501c3 nonprofit status, that means you're tax exempt, fill out a form, send it in. A couple weeks later, you get it back. 
you're done. Once a year, Jesse White's office sends me a one-page form that I sign that says we still exist. Done. I turn in my taxes. In El Salvador, I have to file taxes every single month, and IRS and the government do not communicate. So I was legal according to the government about 18 months before the IRS said I was legal. So then the IRS said I was illegal because I had been working illegally according to them even though the government said I was legal. And so I had to pay 18 months worth of fines. In that time, the government changed their policy, but the IRS did not change their policy. So now the government comes back and says, you are no longer meeting your expectations. But like, so just the level of total dysfunction within a centralized bureaucracy is mind boggling. I used to cry about it, now I just laugh about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? Um, I actually followed this, and on one news like thing that they said, they said the major reason these kids were coming over was because of the whole DACA thing that Obama announced. Do you think that's true? Because of the whole what thing? The DACA. The Dream Act. It's not the Dream Act. It's Which is it? This is the. Action for oh. Direct, so. Um. What do I think? I'll tell you what I've heard down there. People down there think it's a conspiracy theory. Um. You know, these kids are all coming through the same point of the border. They believe the narco trafficker, narco narcotraficantes, the drug dealers, have funneled all these kids to take attention away from other parts of the border to push drugs over. Um, I have not heard down there this, you know, here they think all these kids are coming because they think they're going to be able to stay. Down there, you hear the opposite. People think you've got to go now because they're about to close the border down. So if you don't go now, you're never going to get there. Um, the other thing is the, the economic crisis, right? Um, people here aren't sending as much money back. Do I think people are leaving there because Obama is beckoning them or our you know, policies? No. Um, I think people are leaving because, you know what's actually really interesting? It is not the poorest people who are leaving. Um, it's people with middle, like it's middle class, or their middle class would not be our middle class, but it's people who actually have a better education and stuff and they just want opportunity. Um, in Honduras it's different, it's, I think it is because of violence. What's happening with the gangs in Honduras right now is pretty devastating. Um, but so I, I don't the rhetoric we hear here that um, this is somehow a result of policy that these kids are coming over I think it's just chance you know Latin America has had extreme violence and extreme poverty for a very long time why they weren't leaving before I think is the bigger question you know they should have left they should have started leaving 10 years ago um, so I, I believe also you know, that we know that no matter what part of that solution is, is investing more in them and their countries of origin. You know, I mentioned before, these kids have smartphones, right? They know what's going on in the world. Um, I think any parent who's going to send their five-year-old to walk a couple thousand miles with strangers over multiple borders, you know, you don't take that decision lightly. So... But I also, that being said, I have no faith in... I mean, what do you think is going to happen here? You know, why do you think they're coming? That's what I heard, actually. And I've actually met someone who came from, you know, Central America. Uh -huh. And they told me that was the major reason that they came over. Which was? the fact that they've heard about the deck. So. so they believe that if they come now, they'll be able to stay? Yeah, they'll, they'll be able to, like, apply for that. They think that's the dream act, but in reality it's not. So. Right, that it's a miscommunication of it. Well, so now he's saying to apply for asylum 
from down there, right? Which seems like a really smart decision. So rather than having to get to the border to apply for asylum, that you could do it down there. I'm sure that's part of it. I mean, people want. I've not heard that rumor. Um, I haven't heard people there say, oh, I heard they're letting kids in now. I've heard the opposite. They know that they're not letting kids in, so they feel like they've got to get them here quickly before they stop altogether. I mean, they know they're undocumented. That's my impression. Do, I know you mentioned uh, about the government ineptitude, but is there any concern about the loss of human capital or brain drain that yeah. they have so sure. people? I mean, imagine a third of your citizens leave your country. You spent, you know, Latin America, it's about 20% of the GDP of the gross domestic product comes back in remittances. That means it's family members who are sending money back. Western Union, you know, uh, MoneyGram. You hear about India's brain drain, China's brain drain. Um, yeah, it's a huge problem for those countries. I think it's definitely a sign of our own sort of racism here in terms of the countries we do want immigrants from and we don't and the, the narratives we make up about it. But um, it's not just coming to the states either, it's internal displacements, right? So yeah, it's a huge concern, but there's not really the capacity to do much, I think. Um, there's, Ecuador had a real, I think it's a very cool program. It started about three years ago, where they basically um, advertised to Ecuadorian citizens in the states, come back, we'll buy you the flight, uh, you'll get X amount of time tax exempt. Just come back to the country. Um, but one of the things that happens also, in, all, in Central America it's happening a lot too. People are going back. Um, but coming to the states, the ability to develop a lot more human capital is a real thing. People have opportunities here. They do have better um, jobs. They develop skills, and then they go back. And they don't just go back with money in their pocket, but they go back with exposure to what an efficient economy looks like. Um, so down there, the best jobs people can have actually are like Pizza Hut, Wendy's, fast food jobs. They're reliable. Uh, they're very efficient. There's very clear rules about what you do. Um, versus here, right? I mean, we wouldn't. I don't think we would consider fast food jobs to be something to aspire to. And so, in that regard, like how human capital is developed and then exported back, there's more and more thought about it. And that's what we call transnationalism. So this is a new concept in international development that it's not multinational, meaning a lot of countries, but transnational, meaning it's going back and forth. Uh, but I don't think people are understanding it well enough. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, I, part of it that's really hard, too, is just what it does to families. You know, um, in one of this, in our writing project, I was last week, or I guess it was like three weeks ago, I got to see this girl, Catherine, present her book. And her book is called A Long Distance, and it's about the day she got home and her mom isn't there. Um, and she realizes her mom has gone to El Norte, has gone to the States and looking for work. So she spends three months, she doesn't hear anything from her mom until her mom gets there. And so she's, it's her story about, about that phenomenon. So the, the psychological repercussions it has upon her family and her community, I think, I think that it's really clear that the, the big violence issues are related to that. And I, so there's more and more interest, um, but it's, nobody's thinking about it too deeply. Yes, it's a long answer. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank you for being here, and, and please join me in thanking Deborah for sharing all of her insight on uh, Central America and her org organization. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.